Are you good with people? Maybe you're organized or have a knack for numbers. Well, then chances are you've got skills that could lead to a new career. A Google Career Certificate can help you get a foot in the door with top employers in fast-growing fields like IT support, project management, data analytics, and user experience design. It's professional-level training developed and taught by Google employees. And it's all online so you can learn around your schedule. Put your skills to work. Go to grow.google certificates. Faster my crazy day, my packed commute, all those unread emails in my inbox. But I'm getting stronger, faster, and pushing myself further every day. I don't care if I'm not like everyone else. This punching bag is the best way to end my day. <laughs> Fearless is knowing yoga isn't your style. That's the power of the Blue Cross and Blue Shield Federal Employee Program. Learn more about our healthy benefits at fepblue.org slash get more. Hi, and welcome to The Pollsters. I'm Margie Omero, Democratic pollster. And I'm Kristen Soltis-Anderson, Republican pollster. And each week we bring you the polls driving the latest news in politics, tech, and pop culture. Well, we're so excited to have Mark Murray here. You're the senior political director for NBC News. And I should add, a fellow Longhorn like myself. I think we went there right at the same time, but I imagine that you were a little bit more of a responsible student. I was one than than I was. Like I was like a Quackenbush, Liz Ami kind of Longhorn. I suspect you were a little bit more responsible. I was responsible, but I basically went on the road with the Texas Longhorn football team wherever they were going on road trips. I'd follow them. So I think our fun were a little bit different perspectives, but still, uh, one of the great things about the University of Texas is you can do whatever you want to do there, which is awesome. (laughs) I went to one game and I sat on the visitor's side. That was was pretty much, I know it's kind of a terrible thing to admit, but that's that's my Texas Longhorn experience. I decided to stay for an extra semester to get another football season in so wow yeah well you know there's that's why that's the great thing about having such a big university um so uh we're i'd love to talk to you today about a piece that you did about the final weeks of uh 2016 particularly when it comes to what the polling found or what it didn't find and that the polling as you write, and we've talked about a lot on the show, not just the public polling and the forecasters, but the internal polling all kind of led people to a slightly different conclusion, especially as things were moving in a much more volatile way than maybe the polling could capture. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah. And so, you know, my my piece uh, that uh, was published before Hillary Clinton's book came out, but it looks at how the last 12 days were really crucial in determining who ended up winning and who ended up losing. And the 12 days starting with the Comey letter on October 28th. And if you want to t- almost take a step back, on October 27th, you had a situation where in the real clear average, and this is the national polls, you know, Hillary Clinton was ahead by almost six percentage points, which, you know, if you put that in perspective, that was more than Barack Obama's margin in 2012 and actually close to what he was able to get against John McCain in 2008. Uh, you ended up having the Clinton campaign that was very confident at the time looking at their numbers. And also importantly, the Trump campaign and their data people were coming to reporters, including people like me and saying, hey, we only have a 15% chance of winning. That was October 27th. October 28th, you end up having James Comey and his letter 
which when you look back on it and uh, in interviews that I had with uh, Trump and Clinton campaign officials, it was a true October surprise. And it did end up moving numbers. And, you know, there is a debate out there about how much it did move numbers. The Monkey Cage blog has a piece about, no, Comey wasn't the reason why Hillary Clinton ended up losing. But you end up looking at the data that I have in the national polls. And, you know, you go from October 27th, where Hillary Clinton's lead in the real clear average is close to six points, 5.6%, uh, so 5.6 points. And then you end up going to election day and it is almost cut in half. And by that, and people like Nate Silver and often look that say, Comey had a, an impact. It could have been two or three points. It could have been one point, but in a race that was decided by just 80,000 votes in the combined Michigan, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania, that had an impact. So, you know, you and my, my piece really in, in some ways doesn't say why Hillary Clinton lost, but it's how she lost and how those 12 days, which Comey was a very big part of, but you also ended up having a much more disciplined Trump campaign. You had a Clinton campaign that clearly realized that they were far away from the conventions and the debates that they had thrived at. And then you had Donald Trump that absolutely clobbered Hillary Clinton on election day voting. And you add up all those 12 days and you see how a race that seemed almost out of reach ended up becoming uh, a close enough where Donald Trump was able to pull off the biggest uh, political upset in presidential history. So you cover polling a lot um, when the NBC Wall Street Journal polls come out. Um, you write about them. You cover the polling trends uh, quite a bit. Now, when you look at the polling for 2016, where, again, it's not just, you know, the handicappers. I mean, even um, Trump's own pollster said uh, to us that on Election Day, he thought that Clinton had a 55 percent chance of winning on Election Day, not even before the, this last stretch. Do you think it's a sign of a challenge with polling? Do you think it's a challenge with the way we cover polling? Uh, do you think uh, uh, as you approach 2018 or 2020 that you or, or other folks who cover polling should be looking at this in a different way? Oh, I, I think it's all the above. And yes, polling has its own issues and methodologically on whether you're reaching the right people, uh, whether people are being able to pick up the phone on their cell phones, whether they're being honest with pollsters. Uh, and we have seen some big polling misses. Uh, but the thrust of my piece wasn't necessarily that the polls were wrong, because at the end of the day, the national polls ended up getting very close to uh, what the what the popular vote was and which Hillary Clinton ended up winning. To me, the biggest story of 2016 was how the polls, the state polls in the Midwest and Pennsylvania, Wisconsin and Michigan were off. And of course, you end up looking at states that like Wisconsin and Pennsylvania that are Wisconsin and Michigan that didn't have a whole lot of polling. But the Wisconsin's Marquette University law law university poll has been always one that has nailed almost every Wisconsin election uh, that I uh, have been since I've been covering politics. And they had after Comey had Hillary Clinton up six points. And in my conversations with the Clinton campaign, they also believe that they were up six points in Wisconsin, uh, getting close to election day. The Trump campaign believes that Hillary Clinton was up by a couple of points in Wisconsin. Uh, but clearly there was a polling miss, not only in the public polls, but also in the private data. But my biggest takeaway from the 2016 election, and I think the lessons that, you know, people have is that yes, Polling can sometimes be wrong. You have to, when you go into an election where the margin might be two, three, four points in favor of one candidate, that anything is possible. 
But again, to me, I think that so many people, and I'm also including myself in here, when you, we got to October 27th and you looked at the totality of surveys that were out there, you looked at, you spoke with people on the Trump campaign, you just saw the body language. This looked like a race that was already out of reach. And I think a lot mm-hmm. of people end up giving up on the presidential race. And then Comey ended up happening. And then we, everyone tried to look at the surveys and said, well, Hillary Clinton's still ahead by a handful of points. It looks like she's going to win. Comey then ends up coming out with his second letter saying it's all done and everyone thinks that she's in the driver's seat. You're looking at the the early voting that's taking place in places like Florida and Nevada, and most of the conventional wisdom was that this is still Hillary Clinton's race to win, and it's probably going to look a whole lot like uh, 2012, uh, but we were all wrong. And, uh, you know, I think that it's a reminder, never give up on a race, no matter what the margin looks like uh, two weeks before the election. And two, that, yes, polling can be wrong, that the voters can send us some black swan elections. But in my interviews with the Clinton campaign, they were pretty adamant that they really believe that what ended up happening at the end of 2016 were a series of black swans that ended up dooming their candidate. So how do you think your account uh, compares to now that Clinton's book is out and she's been out talking about it? Do you think you see some of the she saw some of the same warning signs that you um, note that staffers saw? Yeah. And, you know, in my interviews that I had with Clinton campaign aides, and this was before Hillary Clinton's book came out, they were worried. And they, you know, of course, they thought that they were the favorite, that they thought that they were in the driver's seat. But they always thought that Hillary Clinton was in a very vulnerable place when she was taken away from events and almost seen as the leader uh, in, in a particular race. And so, you know, when she was away from from the debates and the conventions that she had all thrived in uh, and was seen as like, well, she's now going to win and we're looking at what her transition would be. Right. Looking back on it, they think that was the always the absolute worst place for her to end up being uh, uh, as opposed to uh, someone who was kind of fighting for her political life. Uh, you know, we, we share a, a good friend in common, Peter Hart, uh, who does the NBC Wall Street Journal poll. And even before the 2016 race, he had often mentioned to me that, you know, Hillary Clinton is a superb candidate when her back is against the wall, but mm-hmm. when she's the front runner is not nearly as good. And what did we end up saying the last 12 days of the election? She was seen as the clear front runner and, and her can- campaign knew that that was potentially vulnerable and they were trying to do other things to shake up the race. You had their uh, people on their campaign who were thinking of proposing a fourth presidential debate with Donald Trump because she was so good at debates and just to be able to give them one more event or moment. There was talk about well, we're going to go to Arizona and campaign there to let reporters know that we're playing offense. Uh, they put out information that Joe Biden was potentially going to be their secretary of state. They were trying to do anything they could to kind of change the subject from either Hillary Clinton frontrunner or Hillary Clinton in emails. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I think one of the lessons for polling from this um, is that we need to be looking at beyond the horse race. I mean, I know that the NBC Wall Street Journal poll is really robust. You, you guys all release, and the folks at Public Opinion Strategies and Heart always release very extensive top lines that show there's a lot of other stuff besides just the horse race. Not all media outlets do that, but you know, I think one of the lessons is we need to be looking more than just who's up two points or four points or six points, but other things like how sure are you about your decision? Mm-hmm. How, how do people who are unfavorable toward both candidates, how are they voting? How are they moving? Especially when we see that so much of Trump's 
victory came from very, very last minute deciders. What do you make of all that? Yeah, exactly. And, you know, one of the reasons I under, under, uh, undertook this assignment looking at the last 12 days was that I had in my head going into the election that this was an incredibly stable race because you end up looking not only at the horse race, but the favorable, unfavorable numbers for Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump. She was always slightly more popular than Donald Trump, although they were both very unpopular, but her numbers were always slightly better than his. The, the numbers over Overall, at least, you know, when I, right before the election, looked very stable. But in all the interviews that I ended up having with uh, campaign strategists, both on the Clinton side and on the Trump side, that their conclusion was that this was actually maybe one of the most unstable races, that you had two incredibly unpopular candidates, and that when one candidate would have the the thrust of the negative media attention on them, their numbers would end up going down. And so you ended up looking in a situation like for Donald Trump, when he was criticizing the Khan family, or after the Republican conventions, or after the debates, and after the, all the... Uh, uh, charges of uh, misconduct with women, Donald Trump's numbers really took a pounding. Uh, and, but then you end up looking when Hillary Clinton had her 9-11 fainting spell. After the Comey letter, her numbers also ended up taking a hit. And so fundamentally, this was a pretty unstable race with two unpopular candidates and a sizable third-party vote between Gary Johnson and Jill Stein that I think at the very end with some persuadable voters did matter on who had the best last 12 days of the election, and that was Donald Trump, and who had the worst uh, 12 days uh, going into the home stretch. I mean, even now, I'm curious your thoughts. I mean, even now, uh, the polling on Trump has an appearance of stability, but obviously it doesn't feel like we're in anything close to stability. But if you look at the tracking of his approval rating, it doesn't move that much, even as all kinds of, you know, erratic news stories, um, you know, come and go. It's still ultimately he's he hasn't really budged that much in terms of his approval rating. Do you feel like it's a similar pattern like? You know, people have kind of made up their mind. There aren't a lot of people who move from day to day based on how people think of them, even if we feel we're in this tumultuous time. Yeah. So I think that for a lot of us, to those of us who live in the daily news cycles, I think that there sometimes is a little bit of a distorted view on what's going on in the broad parts of President Trump's uh, approval ratings. And to me, the biggest takeaway now we're more than 200 days into his presidency is that he's lost every single Democrat. You know, you, you maybe have four to six percent of Democrats approving of his job. He's lost two thirds of independent voters, which I think is incredibly striking. And in Barack Obama's worst day, that's where he was with independence. And that, you know, Trump is pretty much still holding on to, you know, his base and Republicans. And that gets you to an approval rating, you know, between 35 and 40 percent. And to me, and while numbers can always change, and I think the 2016 election tells us, you know, you know, it's not over until it's over and we have a long ways to go, that to have someone lose the entire other party at this juncture, this early of a presidency, to be so toxic with independent voters and holding on only to your base, to me, I think is, a, you know, is a, uh, I, you know, I... I, I think that while we might say, well, boy, after Charlottesville, his numbers didn't go down, I would make the argument that it is really hard for a president 200 days into their job to be at a lower level than where President Trump is right now. Right. I think people act surprised that, you know, something happens and he doesn't just take this incredible nose jo nosedive that his poll numbers don't go off a cliff. And, you know, among Republicans, he, they're not as I mean, obviously, Republicans 
feel good about him, but not uniformly so, not where you'd expect sort of a new president of your party to come in and, you know, get your base excited for the first little bit. The, the Republicans aren't there, and but people nonetheless expect, I think folks on the left, or maybe some folks who talk about it in the press, expect Republicans to just sort of jump ship immediately. And if they're not doing that, that means that Trump is, you know, can do no wrong. And there's no kind of nuance there. I mean, are you finding that when you hear people talk about it? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and the only way that President Trump's approval numbers can go below 35% or get into the 20s is for a substantial number of Republicans to start bailing on him. And since I've been covering politics, there's only been one president whose approval numbers have been in the 20s or low 30s, and that was George W. Bush. But that was after he had been a second-term president, after the Iraq War, after Hurricane Katrina, and even after the uh, economic collapse in 2008. You had to have all of those things happen in the second term, where finally the Republicans Republicans who the percentage of Republicans who are approving his job was at about 70% or below. So, uh, I, 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 I was, I'm not one who would ever think that you would, that President Trump, that all, most of these Republicans voted for just 10, 10 months ago would already jump ship. But again, to me, politically, I think the most telling part in his ability to get things done on his agenda or his power with Democrats. And right now, you know, there, there are a few number of Democrats who approve of his job. And more importantly, the independent number, I think, is very striking. So, uh, yeah, agreed. I mean, often independents can tell you what's going to happen in midterm races of independence. Some, some years independents behave more like Democrats. Some years they pay, behave more Repub- like Republicans. And that really makes a difference in some of these uh, other races. Now, what are you looking for or looking at over the next few months in terms of polling? Again, beyond simply, are you going to vote for the Democrat or Republican for Congress? What other kinds of things are you going to be tracking? What should folks who are watching the NBC Wall Street Journal poll or other polling be taking a look at? I want to see if this is this cake is still baked. And again, we really have, uh, you know, we're a year plus out from the 2018 midterms. And so, it does President Trump's approval number bounce up? Does it stay where it is? Does it fall a couple more points? I think is key. You're right. The generic ballot to me is, you know, always something that's very fun to watch. And when I, you know, just on being able to kind of gauge on what's going to happen in the midterms and, you know, in our polling and other polls, Democrats, if they want to have a 2006 or 2008 type of environment, sometimes they're the generic ballot. They, they need to be, you know, close to double digits if not beyond that. Uh, and, you know, we're going to see if those things still hold. The political science always says that a president's job approval rating, the direction of the economy, and and those g- generic ballots are all key. And But now we're in the stage where Democrats are trying to recruit candidates, where uh, they are trying to raise money. And it's important, I think, for people to realize that the bigger the map, probably the better the chance for Democratic success in 2018. You know, even in 2006, a great Democratic environment, even in 2010, which is a great Republican year, it wasn't like Republicans or Democrats won all their top tier races, that sometimes Mm -hmm. you're only going to able to win about a third or 40% of the races where you are really clearly targeting. So the bigger the map, you know, if Democrats really do put a good 50, 60 races into a, you know, that they were there competing, the better a chance it is for them to pick up the 24 seats, as opposed to if there's only a universe of 30 or 36, they're probably not going to be able to run the table. And so the more 
candidates that we see for them, I think the better the Democratic prospects uh, would end up being. But above all, I mean, I, I do think that looking at a president's approval rating, because the messaging in a midterm election is usually very simple, and that is, you know, the the party in the opposition says, I will not be a rubber stamp, you know, for the president of the United States. And that usually ties the party that is controlling the White House in the knots. So you're so you're still then a believer in polling. You're not one of these, you know, folks in the press or reporters who or, you know, folks I meet basically everywhere who say, well, we can't trust the polls anymore. How can anyone look at the polls? We should be doing X, Y and Z going, you know, talking to other people doing, you know, more boots on the ground kind of work. Yeah, you know, Margie, I, I'm someone who, yeah, I, I, I believe in the polls. I think that they give us a very good situation of where races are. But I do think, and going back to your one of your earlier questions, that when one candidate is up by two or three points, that doesn't necessarily mean that that person's going to win by two or three points. I, and right. I think that that was the misperception of that Georgia 6 special election, where mm-hmm. m- many of the polls that end up having John Ossoff, the Democratic ahead, candidate ahead, by two or sometimes three points. But that doesn't necessarily to me as someone who's interpreting races as a political journalist, that was a 50-50 race. That's not right. somebody who is favored to win by a 75-20% mark, you know, 75, it's going to win 75% of the time. I mean, that, you know, two, three, you're ahead by two or three points in the polls. Uh, that's a 50-50 race. One, one race that I'm looking at right now is Virginia governor's race. And Ralph Northam, the Democrat, is consistently ahead in polls against Republican Ed Gillespie by anywhere between three and six points. And again, I don't think that anyone should say, oh, it's going to be a three or six point race. It's more likely that Ralph Northam has a very small advantage. But, you know, you should not discount Ed Gillespie, the Republican, at all. Right. Especially not in an odd year election where, you know, turnout is going to be even harder to predict than a midterm election or presidential election. It's important for many, so many of us political journalists to be able to, you know, you know, in in a lot of ways in 2016, the polling wasn't wrong, at least the national polls. It was just the way that we analyzed the race that was. And I think that there was an assumption, well, she's ahead in the real clear average by three points and she's going to be fine because Barack Obama was only ahead by one and ended up winning by uh, you know, four points nationally at the end of the day, and they had a better turnout operation. The other thing that I think so many people missed in 2016, and, and from an analytic point, is that the national polls reflect what's going to happen in states like Pennsylvania and Florida. And in all the elections that I've been covering, with just a couple of exceptions from 2000 to 2012, the national, basically where the race was nationally, you know, those battleground states typically ended up reflecting, uh, the national polls. So if, you know, mm-hmm. nationally a candidate was up by four or five points in, uh, nationally, you'd expect it to be somewhat similar in Pennsylvania and Florida. And what we ended up seeing and the biggest surprise of them all in 2016 was that Pennsylvania uh, and Florida really didn't reflect the national popular vote at all. And where Hillary Clinton actually ended up overperforming in places like Texas and Arizona, while Donald Trump overperformed in the Midwest, that, you know, it, it, you looked at the polling in 2000, you know, basically Barack Obama is going to beat Mitt Romney by two or three percentage points the way that Hillary Clinton ended up doing to Donald Trump. You'd say, well, he's ended up winning Pennsylvania. He's he, he is, you know, 
Florida is a 50-50 race. It's his race to win. And all of those kind of rules that we had seen going back to 2000 were off. And again, to me, it's a reminder that, you know, while things might have happened a particular way in a past election, doesn't always mean that's going to be a law or truth uh, for the rest of eternity. Yeah, well, that's for sure. Definitely throwing out a lot of rule books. Lots of rules of thumb are no longer rules, rules at all. And, you know, maybe one result of uh, Clinton overperforming in Texas is you have a lot of targeted races in Texas this cycle. And it's always been this, you know, this sort of mirage, perhaps, that Democrats have really been been uh, gunning for for a long time. And maybe this is the cycle where, you know, Democrats can really pick up a lot of a lot of ground in Texas. Well, Margie, to that point, to me, the biggest political fault lines right now in America, and this was true, truer now than it was in 2008 and 2012, is, are divisions among, you know, education as well as geography, urban versus rural America. And so, you know, yes, Texas is, you know, we, we know very well it has been a reliably Republican state, particularly statewide. When you end up getting to some of the cities, you know, in Houston, in Dallas, in San Antonio, those places are voting a whole lot more Democratic than they used to. Uh, and there is a huge split between rural and urban America. And we're seeing that playing out, particularly in this Trump era. And so Democrats feel like in highly educated congressional districts, in very urban congressional districts, even places that were once seen as bastions of Republicanism, that they have a much better shot than they had in past elections. Right, right. These aren't necessarily just city districts. They are districts that look kind of like that Georgia 6 district that have, you know, um, their suburban, wealthy suburban areas of, of Texas, in addition to sort of the usual suspects of Democratic areas, for sure. Um, so uh, what would be, okay, shifting gears, just our last question before uh-huh. we figure out where uh, learn a little bit more about you. But, you know, what sort of advice would you have? We have a lot of grad students and folks early in their career who listen to our show, who you know, think about going into politics or want to study polling or journalism. Do you have advice for them about, <laughs> is this a good time to enter this field? What do people need to know? What are, what are some of your, you know, uh, hot tips for folks who uh, are looking to, to do some more of this work? I think that the, the best and the brightest should be, uh, you know, trying to do whatever they can in public opinion, because, it, you know, as we mentioned earlier, it's a really tough nut to track crack. There have been so many changes and being able to gauge public opinion and now even outside of politics, I think is incredibly important and in how you're able to get people uh, to, uh, you know, to, to respond and to at least know what's out there, I think is incredibly important. But also, it's really important to have good analytic tools. And and again, you know, if somebody says, well, this candidate's ahead by one point, or their approval rating is X percent, that's not always the entire story. And, and, and then, and then lastly, there is what we've been talking about, where you have the black swan phenomenon, that there was a race that looked like that it was, you know, uh, easy to analyze and you had an, uh, an, an outcome that was so different. Sometimes you have to say that, you know, one out of every hundred races or so can sometimes end up being a black swan. Right. Right. Absolutely. Well, um, folks should definitely check out your piece. It's got lots of interesting quotes from Trump advisors, Clinton advisors, Kellyanne Conway, Brian Fallon, all the folks that people remember uh, seeing every day during the campaign. Can you uh, point people to read more about 
uh, what you found, follow you on Twitter, learn more about all the stuff that you're up to. Absolutely. The article that we've been discussing is The 12 Days That Stunned a Nation, How Hillary Clinton Lost. It's on NBCNews.com. You can just Google it, saying The 12 Days That Stunned a Nation. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at MMurrayPolitics uh, and uh, just click on to a, 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 a morning uh, tip sheet that I co-write called First Read with Chuck Todd. And uh, But yeah, thanks so much for having me and thanks for chatting with my article. And, you know, I, again, I think that us learning about what ended up happening in 2016, including in those crucial last two weeks, I think will help us in all of our reporting going forward in, in 2020 and also in the in 2018 midterms. Yeah, for sure. Well, thanks so much, Mark. We really appreciate it. It was great, uh, great chatting. And uh, I know folks will, will uh, look you up to find out more. Take care. Thanks so much. Bye. Bye.